So why are overeating, stress eating, and binge eating so prevalent in our culture today? That is exactly what we're about to break down. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a PhD, a veteran psychologist, and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm. And from there, he has helped literally thousands of people transform how they view food. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating with his own patients, and that actually came from his own food addiction. So he is very, very intimately knowledgeable and understanding of their situations. Well, after a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants, he is here to help us break down why people overeat, why they binge eat, and how they can change that food prison into a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. This is an episode that you don't want to miss. Let's dive in. Hi, I'm Maria, otherwise known as the Fit Foodie. I'm a chef, holistic nutritionist, author, inventor, and mom. And I want to welcome you to my podcast. It's called Recipes for Your Best Life. And with every episode, I'm peeling back the onion on fitness, nutrition, health, wellness, and family. The truth is, you're the chef of your life. And for every important pillar, there's a great recipe worth sharing. So every week, we'll explore them together. Think of it as food for thought that you can really sink your teeth into. So join me and let's squeeze the joy out of this life because you only get one. Can I get a fork? Yeah. Glenn, it's so nice to have you on the show. It's so nice to be here. I've been looking forward to this. Yes, me too. You know, this topic of binging and overeating is really um, something that uh, comes very near and dear to my heart because I struggled with an eating disorder for many, many years. And I have a lot of followers and, and you know, people that I've coached that struggle with this also. Can you just share a little bit about your background and how you got started on this course of work? Yeah, I've got kind of a unique background. I suppose the most important thing to know is but I'm, I'm not just a doctor who decided to work with overeaters, but I'm a guy who had a pretty serious problem himself. And um, I was probably about 300 pounds at one point. Um, I hover closer to 200 now. And um, you know, it started when I was um, when I was young, when I was an adolescent. I'm 6'4". I'm modestly muscular just genetically. And so if I worked out a couple hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And, you know, I'm talking two pizzas or boxes of muffins or boxes of chocolate bars. Not what me at five foot tall could do. <laughs> right, right. And I thought it was great. I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was a great way to live. And, um, you know, I was happy. I, I sure was spending a lot of time eating and sleeping and going to the bathroom and stuff. But I, I thought it was a great way to live. And then when I was 22 or 23 years old and I was married and I was commuting two hours a day each way um, to see patients and go to graduate school and helping my, my ex-wife now, my wife at the time to run the business, I just didn't have the time to work out hardly at all. I mean, that's, that, that's a 
falsity sometimes also, but I really, I could not work out two hours a day for sure. Mm -hmm. And I found that the food still had a hold of me. And Maria, that the worst part was not so much the physical, I didn't get heavy until later on. The, the worst part was that I couldn't be present. I couldn't be present with my patients. I couldn't really be present in the things that I was trying to do in my life because I'd be thinking, you know, I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and thinking, well, when can I get the next pizza? When can mm -hmm. I get the deli in, you know? Mm -hmm. And I come from a family of 17 psychologists. And the most important thing in the world to me has always been to be a great psychologist. And it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I mean, you got to know a lot of stuff, but it's not like people come to you and they hand you the jigsaw puzzle of their life and they say, Doc, how do I put this together? And then you tell them and they say, okay, I'll get right on that. It's more like, I mean, that, that's easier than you would think it, it would be. Getting people to talk enough and figuring out what's wrong and showing them what they need to do is relatively easy. What's hard is getting them to love and trust you enough to be willing to leave their comfort zone to actually do it. Mm. And in order to do that, you have to lend them your soul. You, you've got to be there. Mm. And I wasn't. I wasn't. I was, I was thinking about food. And that was awful. Mm. Um, coming from the family I came from, I went the traditional route thinking, well, there must be a hole in my heart and that's why I keep trying to fill this hole in my stomach. And so I saw all the best psychologists and saw a psychiatrist, took some medication for a little while and went to Overeaters Anonymous. And, you know, I, I did everything I could think of to heal that hole in my heart. And I think it made me a more compassionate person. I think it took away a lot of the self-hatred. I think that um, it was kind of a kind-hearted spiritual journey, but it didn't help me to stop overeating. I'd get a little thinner and then a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. And, um, and ultimately, I, um, because I was also doing consulting for the food industry, my ex-wife traveled for business. She had a, a focus group business and, um, you know, I would do some of the quantification of her results and I wound up having a lot of these big food clients as, as, as clients. And um, I, I saw that they were engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and yeah. cytotoxic and salt, right? And, and it's all geared to hit the bliss point in your, reptilian, in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And, you know, the result of that is that Every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a very powerful outside force. It doesn't have anything to do with my personal psychology. I mean, I could, I could recite chapter and verse of what happened to me in my youth that, you know, might have struck the match to cause me to turn to food, but it doesn't really it doesn't really, it's not really what causes the food to have a life of its own. And it turns out that in my estimation, what I figured out for myself eventually, like fixing the emotional issues is not really necessary in order to overcome overeating. You need to figure out how to, how to uh, create a fireplace around the fire. And yeah. several, yeah. Yeah. You know, your story, um, I think, obviously puts you into a very different mindset when you're dealing with clients, much more empathetic because you've been through it. And, you know, I, I hear so often, I think for myself included, um, you know, when I was struggling that 
it's just it's like you want to do the right thing but you just don't know how to control it you know it's like we all know what the recipe is to get healthy you know we should eat right we should exercise we should hydrate we should sleep well we should rest we should lower stress so why doesn't everyone do it um and you know we're battling all of these external factors with the food industry and our own psychological you know situation and and hang-ups i mean is there a procedure what are the steps that we need to take in order to get on this path of healing because i think you know practically speaking we need our own uh what's the word kind of like little um i, I feel like there's an angel and a devil sitting on our shoulders all the time like we need our own to tap into our own angels every time how do we do that my my book is very much about that it's funny because i often say it's like you know the old story of the angel and the devil sitting on your shoulder well what if you could work it out that the angel won all the time yeah that's, that's what we work out to do the first thing you need to do is understand what's actually happening um when people that struggle with overeating everything from occasionally eating against their own best judgment to you know full-fledged food addiction it it has to do with a misfiring of the emergency response system Mm. You know, you have that to remember, fight or flight, right? It's fight or flight. I, I like to call it feast or famine. Mm -hmm. that, that the, but it's the same system. It's the sympathetic nervous system that gets us revved up for urgent action. And, you know, in our evolution, there were plenty of times when food was scarce. The abundance of food that we have in today's world is really just the last few centuries, right? Mm -hmm. And mostly since the Industrial Revolution. Um, you know, food was not always so plentiful. And so we would go through periods where food was really scarce. And we must have evolved to have a um, feast reaction when the harvest was here or when there was a big catch so that we wouldn't starve. And so um, we're kind of living on that feast and famine mentality, which is a mentality of lack, not a mentality of abundance. And um, you have to understand that the food industry is leveraging that, that they know how to press those evolutionary buttons. Mm -hmm. And they also know how to turn off your full meters. There are actually you know, some sensors in your intestines and there are chemicals that turn them off. It's, it's really pretty awful. Um, and so it's, it's like a perfect storm for overeating. And what happens at the moment of impulse is that the, the we believe, is that the sympathetic nervous system, that emergency response system that gets us revved up for action and says, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. <laughs> it, it's misfiring. It's misfiring. It actually thinks that there's an emergency. And when there's an emergency, if you were being chased by a hungry bear, for example, you don't really have time to think. You have to, you have to jump into action, you have to spring into action and, you know, and run, right? right. Or, or in the case of feast and famine, if there were a nutritional emergency, which there's rarely these days in our society, but it's perceived as if there were, then the, you know, the primitive brain says, 
get as much as you can right now so you don't starve. Yes, I, I really, boy, this is this to me, and I'm the child of immigrants. So I think even, I don't know, more so, but there's not only that sort of biological programming in, in our DNA, but the real life circumstances of, you know, some days you go to the market and there's not a lot there. So you do have to kind of really sit down with yourself and go, okay, am I going to starve? No. Is there a turnoff button in my body? Yes. Now, how do I calm my brain down to know that there's always going to be food and also know when to turn that, okay, I can put my fork down now. I've had enough. Mm -hmm. So let's address that then. Let's, let's talk about that then. Um, the first thing you need to do is get clarity about what eating healthy really means to you. And this is um, the way that we go about this is antithetical to the way that a lot of the eating therapy world goes about this. Because the eating therapy world will say that having a rule is, is a bad thing. And we think it's more like a kitchen knife. You can use it for good or you could use it for evil. Um, but we believe you need to have a very clear line in the sand so that you know when your reptilian brain is about to turn off your rational thinking. Mm. So, so if I say, I'll never eat chocolate on a weekday again, that's really clear. It's different, by the way, than saying, I'll avoid chocolate 90% of the time and eat it 10% of the time, which is good in theory, but you don't really know which is the 90% and which is the 10%. And as a consequence, you're putting yourself in a situation where you have to make constant decisions and that'll wear down your willpower. So we prefer to have something that really makes it clear what the decision is. So you don't have to make the decisions. And then when there's that little voice in your head, you know, that says, come on, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. And even though it's during the week, you're not going to gain any weight if you have one little chocolate bar besides chocolate, you know, grows on a plant and therefore is a vegetable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I like you, that rationalizing. <laughs> right. But, but, but you need to really be able to distinguish those types of thoughts as, a, as an indication that your rational brain is getting turned off and your reptilian brain is getting active. Once you have that, there's a procedure you can go through. Um, Lori Hammond calls this a 7-11 breath. So if you can breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11, and you do that a couple of times, you are telling your brain, look, there's no emergency here. If you were being chased by a hungry bear, you could not take the time to breathe in for seven and out for a count of 11. You mm -hmm. couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So this pattern of breathing takes you out of the, of the sympathetic emergency response system and moves you into the parasympathetic system, which says it's time to rest and digest so that you can afford to turn on your rational system and strategize and plan and pursue your, you know, longer term, more valued goals. So, but it, so literally take a deep breath. I mean, you know, I think that becomes kind of undervalued in our society, like take a deep breath, it's going to be okay. But it really does help. It really does cause, and, and I tell my, my, you know, coaching clients this all the time, just breathe. Um, the options are going to be there. But what about 
What about portion sizes? Can we just kind of shift to that for a second? Because I think what also puts us into trouble is we get into this place where we're little delusional about what a portion size should look like. And if we're going out to eat, you know, chances are they're giving us way more calories in a meal than we're supposed to be getting. I mean, is there a way to also tell your brain, look, I'm going to eat until I am satisfied, like two thirds full, not over full. And I'm going to eat slowly to achieve that. Like, how do you also coach people on once the food's in front of them, how do they just, you know, eat to moderation? Have you ever wondered, is rinsing my produce with the water that comes out of the sink that I don't even drink enough to really clean it? Well, then you're one of the smartest people I know because you're absolutely right. It's not enough. That's why we created the only all-natural and patented line of food wash and wipes, and it's called Eat Cleaner. It's tasteless, odorless, and lab-tested, and it removes up to 99.9% of the residue that water can't, including pesticides, wax, soil, and junk that can carry bacteria that can really make you sick. Plus, we formulated it to help extend the shelf life of your fresh produce too, and that'll save you money. When your berries are lasting up to 10, 12 days, you know that's a good thing. It helps your produce last up to five times longer using a natural blend of fruit acids and antioxidants. So there's no chemicals, it's just clean eating fun. And this can help save your family an average of over $500 per year. Make it easy on yourself, reduce waste, and get that fruit and veggies into your body where it's gonna do you a lot of good and not in the trash. Check us out eatcleaner.com or head to our Amazon store at amazon.com forward slash eatcleaner. We do it in stages um, because it's my firm understanding from having worked in the food industry and having, you know, we've seen almost 2000 clients, um, you know, who are struggling with binge eating that there's so much going on to break our full meters that it it takes four to six months of having some more, more objective measures. What that looks like might be, um, you know, if you go out to eat, tell yourself that half the portion is for me, half the portion is for my reptilian brain. Mm. And so you, you, know, you take home the second half, you cut, you know, use a knife, cut it in half on the plate and um, literally have them have the waiter take it away. So it's not even a temptation. (laughs) Yeah. Or or, or bag it up or something for later or or something like that. But just, just know that uh, portions are probably about double what you need. It's a a good heuristic and it'll give you a lot of protection Um, or to use something else that's objective. Like maybe you think a meal is, um, one fist of protein, something about the size of your fist of protein, something about the size of your fist of starch and, you know, two fists of vegetables, and then maybe a piece of fruit for dessert or something like that. Um, but, but to have some kind of objective measure for the first few months where you're getting used to uh, normal portion sizes and, you know, accustoming yourself to not really eating what our society um, condones as eating, because we, we live in a society where everybody tacitly encourages each other to slowly commit suicide with food. I mean, mm. We, mm. we we just don't live in a healthy um, 
Jakarta Krishnamurti said, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And unfortunately, I think that's what it's come to. So I think, you know, I think this is really important um, and understanding basic nutrition and what a portion size really is. You mentioned a fist size, you know, there there are guidelines where you can look at a portion and know if it's the right amount, whether it's a fist size or the size of your palm or, you know, and when you look at your palm and think, well, that's not that big, but that's, that's actually what we should be eating. You're going to slow down and savor it. And therefore your digestion's also going to catch up and your brain's going to tell you, okay, I'm satisfied because most people inhale their food, right? Yes. Eat too quickly and get indigestion, overeat, and then they don't feel well. Do you guide people as well on just how long it should take to eat a meal? Well, we don't give them a specific amount of time, but we do ask them if they were aware of every bite, could they feel it nourishing them? Mm. Um, you, you know, and, and we, and there are studies that suggest that when you're more mindful and present as you're eating, you're actually absorbing more nutrition. Mm. The, the other thing we, the other thing we tell people is that, you know, it's easier to trust your hunger and full meters when you're eating whole foods, regardless of whether you're, you know, a plant-based person or a carnivorous person, a low-carb person, a keto person, if you're eating whole foods, it's much, much easier to, to be mindful and trust your nutritional signals than if you're eating, you know, potato chips and chocolate bars and donuts and, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of processed foods because, um, you know, the, you get a lot of calories in oil, for example, but you don't really get any nutrition. Right. And, and so the nutritional sensors are going to keep telling you that you're hungry, you have to keep going. Right. And so I don't think that the necessity of teaching people mindful eating would have even been a thing 100,000 years ago. I, <laughs> I, I don't think Thag was sitting around going, oh my goodness, Thag eat too much mammoth. I, I, <laughs> I think... <laughs> So true. I mean, you know, we we just have this this excess that we live within, you know, and it's abundantly available. And when you go to countries where it's not abundantly available and you have to prepare your food and you have to source it, you know, people look a lot different. That's just the bottom line, right? And, so and, mm -hmm. yeah. So I was just gonna say, like, I think also just the reconciliation of food, um, you know, also comes with really understanding it and learning how to prepare it, right? Do you, you know, is, is there part of your message or your book where you talk about actually learning how to make food? Because I think when I have taught people and they have gotten into the kitchen, they just have a much different awareness and appreciation for every bite. You know, um, I wouldn't say that that's our forte, but I, because that wasn't my forte. I, I learned to regulate the things that I shouldn't have much more than um, adding the things that I should have. And it didn't come until much later in my journey that I started preparing food myself and, 
you know, portioning it out and putting it in the freezer and making sure there was always really healthy food available. Um, I, I will say that virtually everybody who's successful long term comes to the conclusion that they have to prepare a lot of their own food. Mm. Um, because there, there are not enough breaks on the industry in terms of what's developing and everything has become supersized. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, like I said, there, there are things that turn off your ability to, to stop. Um, but like, for example, when you have a bag of chips, the odds are those chips were not manufactured on a unitary assembly line, but they're probably a half dozen. And, those, um, each one of the different assembly lines probably has a very slight differentiation, very, very slight variation in flavor because there's an evolutionary response that seeks variety because mm. in nature, when you get variety, you get more, not more micronutrients, right? Mm -hmm. But you're not getting more micronutrients from potato chips, but that, that keeps you eating. You keep going when you, when you do that. So preparing your own food. Um, you know, looking at recipes, learning how to follow them. And we find most people need to have five or six solid recipes and maybe a couple of healthy desserts that they like to have. And then life, life gets a lot easier. Yeah, I could see that. Are there certain trigger times that you see with your patients um, that, you know, people just need to be aware of? I know I've had people share with me, you know, it's, it's the after dinner that is just a bear for them and how, how to manage through that. That's the hardest time. Mm. That's the hardest. Nighttime eating is most difficult for people. And there, we wrote a whole book on it. Um, I, I've written seven books, by the way. Um, and we will list those in the show notes um, as well. So people can get a hold of your books, but never binge again is your most recent one, correct? Yes. And if you give me 30 seconds at the end, I'll tell people how to get the um, perfect. The, the, I'll get it for free. Um, so, so your question was about times of day and nighttime eating is definitely the nemesis of most overeaters. The reason for that is multifaceted, but it has a lot to do with the fact that we're wearing down our willpower by making decisions all day long. Mm. And it's not just food decisions. It's, um, you know, people have trouble resisting marshmallows in studies when we make them do math problems beforehand. So it's any kind of decision-making. Every time you answer an email, you're making a decision. What do I say? Do I defer it? Do I delegate it? Do I delete it? Do I spam it? What... Um, you know, who's going to take the kids to soccer practice? Um, who's going we to babysit? make a couple thousand a day, I think, right? Yeah. And so by the time the night is come, and each one of those decisions takes some brain glucose, and by the time the night has come, you're spent. It's like the gas on the tank. So here's what we find to overcome nighttime eating. Um, first of all, be kind to yourself because it's a, it's a difficult bar. It's harder than other bars. And secondly, um, you probably need to have breakfast earlier than you think you do. Virtually everyone who's come to us with a significant nighttime eat overeating problem tells us that they don't really like to have breakfast. They're waiting till 11 or 12 o'clock. They'll typically say that because once they start eating, then they're hungry for more food. But th the problem is that we think that um, it creates too long of a fast between um, between when you're supposed to stop eating and when you're, when you're going to start again. And the brain knows that. Mm. So at least for four to six months, if you can have breakfast a bit earlier, 
you know, nine, nine o'clock, nine thirty, something like that, and have something you know, substantial, not too not too high glaze. They make something that's going to hold you for a while. That seems to be very helpful. Um, then we find this is interesting. I don't entirely know why that is, but we know that it is. <laughs> that if people will add some crunch to their lunch, Ooh, you know, so, yeah. some celery or cabbage or carrots or something they actually have to like aggressively chew on. Um, I had a nutritionist tell me it was a hard chew before. Um, they seem to do better with nighttime overeating. Mm -hmm. our, our, our hypothesis is that there's some oral aggression that develops over the course of the day that has to be released. Um, we don't really know for certain. We just know that that is the case. We find that it's helpful for people to have some type of a ritual that delineates the line between dinner time and decompression time. So, you know, one of our clients, she claps her hands three times and she goes, kitchen's closed. Mm. And another one closes the dishwasher and says, dinner and done. Mm. And then people move to another room of the house where they brush their teeth or they take a shower or they take their makeup off or something. But it's, it's a, kind an of an announce. It's almost like a. It's this announcement to themselves and to, you know, to th that their body agrees with because there's some sort of oral. You know, like okay, I have, you know, announced it. Therefore, I'm done. Right, and you're you're changing the environment, mm -hmm. and so the contextual cues are different. There's not as many as many stimuli and triggers, um, and then some people have to ease into it. So instead of saying, I will never eat after 7 p.m. again, unless I'm out to dinner with friends or something, um, they'll say, I'll never eat anything after 7 p.m. except for, and they'll have a, a list of relatively harmless foods, like except for steamed broccoli or steamed spinach, or yeah. except for some, you know, tea with oat milk and cinnamon or something like that. Or some people use diet jello. I don't think that's particularly healthy, but some people do that. Um, and, and so they, they really think about their decompression time. They direct their energy elsewhere. So, you know, people might knit or they might read or they might cuddle up with their wife or play with their dogs or, but they, they consciously and purposely direct their energy elsewhere. And, um, then people have to work on their sleep hygiene also. So letting go of the day without eating. A lot of people think that they can't let go of the day without eating, that they're going to be too anxious, but I don't know if we have time to talk about this, but there are actually animal studies that suggest the opposite is true. Yeah, I, I, I think there, I think we need another, uh, we're going to need to do another podcast because there's so many more questions that I have. Good, um, I'm happy to do I that. I mean, and, and, you know, one thing that I just want to add really quickly is I think we get into this place too when our bodies are dehydrated right when we think we're hungry and our our brain is telling us that it's time to eat but we're actually thirsty definitely um, i know for me that that was a big issue when i was struggling as i was just always dehydrated i was running on coffee and uh, I wasn't really drinking water. And once I started drinking water, it seems like a lot of what I was going through kind of fixed itself, at least for me, you know? Absolutely. And you, you need to have enough water to lose weight also to flush the toxins out of your body. And um, yeah, a lot of our people who are successful report that they're carrying a water bottle around with them all day. 
they make these special bottles. I forgot the name of them. Um, but that actually has little encouraging points along the yes. way. It's, yeah. Yeah. You can find them out there a lot now where it encourages you and tells you, okay, keep going. You've almost made it. And I think those are great. Um, I, I really want to share, um, just about your book and how people can get it. Um, so that people can start to act on some of these steps that may be struggling or maybe have someone in their life that is struggling. Can you just share where people can find Never Binge Again? Yeah. Um, ironically, you could find that at neverbingeagain.com. <laughs> and if you click on the big, <laughs> neverbingeagain.com, click on the big red button and sign up for the reader bonus list and we will get you a copy in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format for free. We also have Audible and paperback, but there's a charge for that. Um, and the two other things we'll give you when that happens. First, um, I want you to hear how the system works in action. So we recorded a whole set of full-length coaching sessions. You can hear those. Um, this is all free. And we have a set of food rule starter templates just so you can get some ideas about what types of lines you might draw in the sand in order to separate yourself from your own lizard brain. And the program is diet agnostic. So, you know, personally, I'm plant-based, but probably about half our audience is low-carb or keto. So we have, um, we have plans for those. We have plans for, um, you know, point counters or calorie counters or plant-based or carnivores, or it really doesn't matter as long as you are as long as you're willing to flood your body with nutrition at not too whole high a caloric, yeah, yeah, whole food, as long as you're willing to do that, then, um, you know, we can help you. It's all at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button and everything else that we offer, you'll find by doing that too. Our books, our seminars, our coaching programs, private group, online, our forums, neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. So wonderful. So wonderful that you're offering these valuable tools to people for no cost. I mean, everyone should go out and download and, and attend and listen and absorb because the more we have these types of tools at the ready, the more we'll be prepared for an emergency um, because you can never be prepared for an emergency in the moment. <laughs> You've got to be ready for it prior. Um, Glenn, I always ask our guests one last question, and uh, this is more of a, a personal to you. If you could have any meal prepared by anyone, what would it be and who would make it? <laughs> um, my, my girlfriend makes a version of Dr. Furman's lasagna. Mm. Um, it's got no pasta in it. It's made with eggplant and arrowroot and tomatoes and cashews and it's got no salt and i swear it tastes just like lasagna to me mm, um, that sounds great i love dr Furman's work too mm -hmm. i might have to call her and ask her to make it tonight now i was gonna say <laughs> that's a nice shout out you're gonna have to have her um, listen to that now yeah Dr. Glenn Livingston, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and these practical tips for people to never binge again and, and get their overeating struggle in check because you're right, when it's out of control, it's really hard to have a grip on your purpose in life. And, uh, and we wanna help people find that. So thank you for sharing this. And uh, 
make sure listeners that you grab these free resources. The link is in the show notes, neverbingeagain.com. We'll have you on again. We've got so much more to talk about. I'd love to. Thank you, Mariah. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I know you have a lot of choices out there of what to listen to, what to watch. So it means a lot to me that you're here with me. And hey, if you love this content, would you hit the subscribe button? I want you around. I don't want you to just show up for one episode and leave. I want you here, part of the conversation, a seat at this table. And while you're at it, would you share this with your friends and family? And if you take a screenshot and share it on your social media with a hashtag RFYBL for recipes for your best life, I'll make sure to personally give you a shout out and you may just be featured right here on the show. So until next time, here's to living deliciously and being the chef of your best life.